So who is the wisest person that you have ever known? Think about that for a moment. Who is the wisest person that you have ever known? Your answer to that question, and especially, especially your, your initial response to the question, uh, reveals what you believe wisdom to be, what you think it means to be wise. And as you settle on an answer, uh, what you're really focusing on is what you see to be the fruit of wisdom. That is what you believe wisdom looks like in a person's life. So what fruit does wisdom bear is really the question. I doubt that many of you immediately thought, okay, who is the wealthiest person I've ever known? Who's the most successful by the world's standards? Who's the most powerful and esteemed? Maybe that's what you think the gain from wisdom is, but I doubt it. In fact, I suspect it's not someone especially wealthy or powerful at all that you settled on, but rather someone who has demonstrated contentment apart from wealth and power. And I doubt that many of you immediately thought, okay, who is the most intelligent or educated person I've ever known? The most academically revered and accomplished? The person with the greatest sway in a particular area? You see, we instinctively seem to be able to distinguish between wisdom and intelligence or education or cultural influence. No, instead, I suspect that the fruit of wisdom on display and the people that came to your mind is a, a settled contentment regardless of the circumstances. Quiet composure and, and self-control. But more than that, someone with the ability to help others see things with the same clarity with which they see them. And thus to impart a measure of their wisdom, a measure of their settled disposition to others. In other words, a peacemaker. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. You can find it on page 230 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by just reading through the end of chapter 3. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let us pray. Father, as we seek you through your word this morning, grant us wisdom, the wisdom from above, that we may reap a harvest of righteousness as we increasingly become sowers of peace. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we are now well into the second half of James's letter. By way of reminder, early in the letter, uh, James gave us an indication of, of where he was going in the letter. 
The first chapter, it concluded by noting three marks of what James called pure religion. It's one, concern for the needs of others. Two, control of our tongues. And then thirdly, the need more generally to counter the corrupting influence of the world. Then in chapter 2, he he further fleshed out that first mark, concern for the needs of others. In the first half of chapter 3, we were in last week, he further fleshed out the second mark, control of our tongues. Beginning with our passage today, and most of the remainder of the letter, he fleshes out the third mark, countering the corrupting influence of the world. So concern for the needs of others, control of our tongues, encountering the corrupting influence of the world. That's where we are now. The immediately preceding discussion about taming the tongue, it concluded with several illustrations of like producing like. Take a look again at at verse 11. He says this, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? Well, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. His point is that like produces like. Or or put differently, as Jesus put it, healthy trees bear good fruit, diseased trees bear bad fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. Well, so too, wisdom. Godly wisdom produces one kind of fruit. Worldly wisdom produces another. Verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Notice how this serves as kind of a bookend to the previous section that began in verse 1, where he said, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And that warning served to kick off the discussion about the, the power and the danger of words, and thus the need for all of us to to tame the tongue. Now, kind of bookending that, rather than addressing would-be teachers in the churches, he addresses those in the churches who fancy themselves to be wise and understanding. Many churches have an ample number of people who at least claim to be spiritually mature and to, to have wisdom that needs to be heeded by the rest. And praise God for the gift of those who are, quote, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, like the seven men of good repute who were appointed to the diaconal service in Acts chapter 6, which we considered in the sermon a couple weeks ago. Praise God for those who are, in fact, full of wisdom. But just as not many in the church should become teachers, none should presume to be wise in understanding. James says to, to any who say that their voice should have great sway, he says, step forward. Let us evaluate that. Not on the basis of your seniority. Not on the basis of your success and esteem in the business world. Not on the basis of how much you give to the church. Not on the basis of how big of a stink you can raise, how loud you can be. Not on the basis of how many people you can get in your corner. Not even on the basis of of your specific ideas and opinions, but based on your life. Let us evaluate your claim to wisdom. Is your speech marked by gracious words that build up or by a sharp tongue that tears down? Is your life's rudder, namely the tongue, like we talked about last week, is it oriented toward stormy waters or toward peaceful waters? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, says James. The meekness, the the gentleness, the humility 
produced by godly wisdom. That is the fruit of wisdom. It's humility. We saw this the first time that James brought up the topic of wisdom in chapter 1, verse 5, the context of suffering. With wisdom there producing the, the humility to trust God when you can't understand what He's doing in your trials. That's what wisdom was there, the ability to trust God when you can't understand what He's doing in your trials, and that is humility. Wisdom always evidences itself in humility. Why? Because wisdom sees God rightly. That's really what wisdom in the Bible is. It's it's the ability to see God rightly. And in seeing God rightly, to then be able to see yourself rightly, and to be able to see the world rightly, and that breeds humility. You see yourself rightly before God. But, says James, not all within the church have this wisdom, as evidenced by the fact that they don't all have humility. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is, do not boast about being wise and understanding when you're clearly not. To claim otherwise is to be false to the truth. And thus, James returns once again to the overwhelming, overarching theme of the entire letter, self-deception. The worst kind of which is is claiming uh, that you have saving faith when you don't. For the faith faith that saves is a living faith that produces the fruit of humility and peace. James here, he's moving into a discussion, the first few verses of chapter 4, about quarrels and, and fights within the churches there. So he jumps right to the heart, right to the root of that disorder and strife. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. A bitter jealousy, or you could translate it envy, is focused not just on what someone else has that you want, but that's just covetousness. But, but envy is something else. Bitter jealousy is more than that. It's not just focused on what they have that you want. It's focused on the person who has it. Intensely focused on the person who has it. And this focus quickly leads to anger toward that person. And anger then leads to hate. Desiring their harm rather than their good. That's bitter jealousy. And then this, of course, overlaps with selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is concerned with only your own good, without regard for and even at the expense of the good of others. Selfish ambition, certainly without regard for the good of the church. Verse 15, this, he says, is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Why does James describe bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as wisdom? How is it a kind of wisdom? Well, because there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 16, 25. There's a way that seems right to man. This is the way of the world. So often the way to wealth and power is through this worldly, self-serving kind of wisdom. But it's not a wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, he says corresponding to the ways of the sinful world. It's unspiritual, he says, corresponding to the ways of the sinful flesh. It's demonic, corresponding to the ways of the devil. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic, the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not heavenly in origin, but hellish in origin. 
You see, to walk the path of humility is to align yourself with heaven. To walk the path of pride is to align yourself with hell. And you are either aligned with God and with His purposes for your life and the life of the church, or you are aligned with demons in opposition to God's design for your life and the life of His people. It is one or the other. He continues, verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, strife, every vile practice. Throughout this passage, we're not told any of the details about the fights that were going on in these churches to whom he writes. We're simply told the sin at the heart of those fights. It's the sin of self-serving pride. And so it is with, with all disorder, all strife within churches. It always comes down to people seeking their own interests rather than God's interests. Sometimes it's simply about a desire to exert power and control over others even in seemingly small, insignificant things. Other times, it's about building influence and esteem for yourself, kind of empire building. Other times, it's it's simply believing that you're always right, such that your preferences and your traditions are, are, are necessarily best. All of this at the expense of seeking God's will and God's ways, which would bring unity and peace. Verse 17 He says, but the wisdom from above, godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom, is first pure. This word pure, it seems to serve as a heading so that the following seven virtues are are basically seven dimensions of purity. The first is peaceable, he says. It's peace-loving, full of peace. Then gentle, considerate, mindful of others. Then he says, open to reason, able to be reasoned with, willing to yield to others then full of mercy and good fruits. Remember what we saw in the previous chapters where mercy and good works have been used to describe concern for the needs of others. He says impartial, that is, without self-serving favoritism. Though that word can also be, uh, mean single-mindedness, undivided in loyalty. Impartial, undivided. And then finally, the last of the seven virtues, fleshing out purity, sincere. Sincere, not done for show, right? Not double-minded. Concludes saying, verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So these, these divided churches, these fractious churches to whom he's writing, they're in desperate need of peace. But the peace that they need will only come through pure hearts that heavenly wisdom will bring. The question being posed to us is, Do you possess heavenly wisdom? Are you wise and understanding? Well, with your words and with your deeds, are you sowing peace or are you sowing strife? Put differently, are you helping people to see God more rightly, to align with His will, to align with His ways, or are you seeking to establish your own will in your own ways? See, each one of us is either sowing peace or we are sowing strife because we are either aligned with God who wants to build up His churches or we're not, which means we are aligned with demons who want to tear down His churches. It is one or the other. Now, as as James is modeling for us, that's not to say that there are not battles that must be fought 
in the churches. James issues more than one command every other verse in this letter, and he employs strong language when he does so. He compares their so-called faith that doesn't produce good works to the faith of demons. He compares their so-called wisdom that doesn't produce purity to the wisdom of demons. He labels their failures to control their tongues as rampant wickedness. He calls their tongues a world of unrighteousness set on fire by hell. As we're about to see in chapter 4, he rebukes them as you adulterous people. Strong words. Worldly wisdom would say that such rigidity and firmness and directness will those serve only to promote division rather than peace. But that's not true. There is no peace in the church apart from unity. There's no unity apart from purity, and there's no purity apart from truth. It is the truth that unifies. We unify around something. We unify around the truth that purifies our souls. As Jude wrote in Jude 3, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We must contend for the faith. There is a sense in which we must fight for peace in the churches. But we must do so with, quote, gentleness and respect, as Peter wrote, 1 Peter 3.15. We must do so speaking the truth, quote, in love, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.15. Not advancing our own preferences and our own purposes, but advancing God's purposes as revealed in His Word. And as we we fight for peace in the church by fighting for truth, we never delight in the fight itself. You'll find that in some people who, who seem to be claiming that they're contending for the faith. They seem to delight in contention and divisiveness. But no, we, we don't delight in the fight. We are aimed at a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. James continues his point in verse 1, chapter 4. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So again, what's at the root of their quarreling and their fighting? It's frustrated desires. It's unsatisfied passions. Now, he talks about coveting and desiring and not having, so they murder. It's unlikely that they are literally murdering one another in the churches to whom he writes. It seems he'd spend a little bit more time on that if that were the case. And given the way that these verses are sandwiched between passages focused on the tongue, um, before and after it, it appears that this metaphorical language is being used to describe verbal quarrels. So not physical fighting in the churches but, but liter- or literal murder. But again, a bitter jealousy, envy, what's it lead to? As you, you fixate on a person who has what you want, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, it leads to anger. Anger, unchecked, will lead to hate. And hate, unchecked, can lead to murder. It did in the case of the religious leaders of God's people in the first century. As we read in Mark 15, verse 10, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up to him. And Pilate said to them, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. What happened? Bitter jealousy, envy, it led to anger. Anger led to hate. And hate led to murder. All of these, anger, envy, hate, murder, they all have the same motion in our soul. 
the same posture of hostility and enmity, desiring someone's harm rather than their good. Self-serving pride is deadly in more way than one. James continues, second half of verse 2. He says this, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So in the first part, he's clearly pointing to a lack of prayer. Right? They, they do not have because they do not ask in prayer. Why? Well, because proud people rarely humble themselves in prayer. Proud people don't pray. And even when they do bring their request to God in prayer, God does not grant their request. Why? Because they ask wrongly to gratify their selfish passions. So it's a challenge for us to ask, what have you been praying for that you have not received? Could it be because the object of your desire has made you like the prodigal son who asked for his share of the inheritance before his father had died? declaring that his father was better to him dead than alive. Do you desire the things you're praying for more than you desire intimacy with the one to whom you're praying? Worshiping the gift rather than the giver of that gift. Like asking your spouse for money that you can turn around and spend on an adulterous relationship. Are you asking God to help you cheat on him in your heart? And that is why he is not granting your prayer. Verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This rebuke at the beginning of the verse is better translated, You adulteresses. Adulteresses. It's It's feminine clearly drawing on the Old Testament imagery of God's people being His bride, His marriage partner, with the the marriage covenant designed to picture God's covenant with His people. The New Testament picks up this same imagery. It continues it, describing Christ's church as His bride. Ephesians 5. See, Christianity is not a set of beliefs. Christianity is not a set of practices. Christianity is a covenant between you and your Savior. It is an intimate relationship of faithful, loyal love, like a marriage. So then to indulge worldly desires, allowing self-serving pride to create division in Christ's church, is to commit spiritual adultery against your Savior, your covenant partner, your bridegroom. That's how serious this is. That's how serious it is to give expression to your self-serving pride that causes divisions in Christ's church. The language of friendship in the, in the first century communicated something a uh, much closer degree of intimacy than it does in, in our culture. As he says, you are either a friend of the world or a friend of God. You are either enjoying intimacy with God or you are enjoying intimacy with the world. If you're enjoying intimacy with the world, that makes you an enemy of God. There's no room for simply flirting with the ways of the world. God tolerates no rival. You cannot serve two masters, as Jesus said. James continues, verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? 
He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The, the Greek here is, is strangely ambiguous. It's actually one of the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament to translate and to interpret. There's two ways to, to understand what James could be saying here. Uh, according to this translation that the ESV takes, uh, it's describing God as the covenant husband of his people. And as their covenant husband, he yearns jealously for their complete allegiance and devotion to him alone, as a spouse should, with the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, referring to, to our whole being. He's, he's jealous for our hearts. He's jealous for our lives, as a marriage partner should be. That's one interpretation. That's what the ESV took. Another possible interpretation is that it's our, our fallen spirits, the ones that's doing the envying here, and that James is simply pointing out that this is a common theme in Scripture. Both points are clearly true. But as jealous as God rightly is of our undivided devotion, and as sinfully adulterous as we are in our divided devotion, it moves into next the point that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Verse 6, But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the climax of the letter of James. Everything's been building to this verse. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What kind of grace is in view here? Clearly, it's the grace to satisfy your covenant partner's demands. We're not focused here on God's forgiving grace, but on His purifying grace. The grace to transform and enliven and empower our hearts to stay true to our partner. You see, in and of ourselves, James's whole point throughout this letter has been that in and of ourselves, we don't and we can't show proper concern for the needs of others. We don't and we can't control our tongues. We don't and we can't counter the corrupting influence of the world in and of ourselves. And thus we don't and we can't achieve peace in the churches. But He can. He can do that work in us if we will seek His purifying grace. So He says, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. These three commands are basically three ways of saying the same thing. First, submit to God. Bend the knee to His Lordship over you. His rightful rule of your life and His people. Submit to Him. It's really the same thing as saying resist the devil. That is, withstand his attacks. Refuse to give in to his temptations. Resist the devil. It's really the same as saying draw near to God. Traverse the great chasm that sin has created between you and your God. Actively seek for restored intimacy, restored fellowship, restored friendship. Draw near to God. Notice that the parallelism of the second half of verse 7, the first half of verse 8, those last two commands. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The picture being painted here with this spatial language is that of being in between the devil and God. But rather than being squarely in the middle between the two, it's the picture of the devil being much nearer to you than God is. 
which is clearly undesirable, right? One is your enemy. The other is your beloved father and savior. One desires your demise. The other desires your victory. The wrong one is near to us. So is there anything that can be done to reverse our position? Yes. Notice the if-then structure of both these statements. He's saying, if X, then Y. If you resist the devil, then he will flee from you. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. It's two sides of the same coin. So the way to get the devil to flee from you, which is what you should want, to get him to flee from you, and to get God to draw near to you, is for you to get up, turn your back on the devil, and take a step toward God. Put differently, stop resisting God, start resisting the devil. Stop submitting to the devil, start submitting to God. That's what he's calling for us to do. And we do so, God will draw near to us. But we quickly realize that there's far more to this isn't there? Anyone who has ever tried to turn their back on the temptations of the devil and to draw near to God knows there's far more to it than simply choosing to do things differently. That's where the rest of verse 8 continues. Verse 8, verse B. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You can't go from from playing in the mud with your, your hands plunged into the muck to then immediately start using those hands to to build something useful. Otherwise, you just keep smearing the mud on everything that you touch, spreading it everywhere you go, defiling every good thing that you try to make and touch. No, you first have to get the crud off your hands. you got to get them clean. Well, so too your heart. But how? How can you make your heart clean? Again, James's point, you can't, but God can That's the point. He gives more grace. So when He calls us to cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, He's calling us to to humbly acknowledge our need for God to do for us and to us what we cannot do for ourselves. He says, confess that you are a sinner in need of cleansing. Confess that you are double-minded with divided loyalties who needs purifying. And God will give you grace. Let the weight of this devastating reality of your sinfulness and need to be made clean by God, let this devastating reality really settle in on your conscience to the point that it begins to crush you, so that your sin and its grievous consequences begin to pain you until it drives you to cry out for grace. Hear this emotional language in verse 9, the language of repentance, being crushed by your sin that you genuinely from the heart Call out for grace. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Repent. Mourn now or mourn later because judgment is coming. And you are either actively drawing near to God or you are drawing near to the devil. The language of drawing near to God, it builds on the imagery of priests who approach the Holy of Holies, the presence of God on the earth in the temple. They approached Him with bloody sacrifices in their hands, painfully aware that their unworthiness to serve God in His presence, in desperate need of both His forgiving grace and His purifying grace. That enabled them to then be fully devoted to Him, No longer double-minded, no longer divided in loyalty, but purified, wholly devoted to Him. That's what they were seeking. That's what we need as we are calling out to Him for grace. 
we repent of our sin. Verse 10, finally, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Similar to the language that Jesus used in telling a parable in Luke 18, he says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with a contempt. He tells this, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, drawing near to God's presence. One, a Pharisee, a religious leader. The other, a tax collector, an enemy of God and his people. The Pharisee, the religious one, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. doesn't sound like being wretched and mourning and weeping. But the tax collector standing far off, would not lift up even his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Christ died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous. He never used a careless, evil word. He never sowed strife between God's people. He never acted out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. There was no self-serving pride in him. But having taken the form of a servant, both in the likeness, born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, where he bore the punishment that our sin demands. And he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that all who place their trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins will be exalted to reign with Him forever on the last day. Look to the cross and become wise. Look to the cross and be purified. Look to the cross and become a sower of peace instead of strife. You see, the only antidote for conflict within the church is the unity that comes from a purified heart. Notice that James does not call uh, for us to seek compromise between competing factions in the church. No, that's the wisdom of the world, compromise. Instead, James calls us to seek pure hearts, hearts that are aligned with the heart of God, our Creator and Savior. Then, once our hearts are aligned with His, then unity and peace will follow. So we all become wise and understanding, made more like our Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. Again, grant us the wisdom from above that we may reap a harvest of righteousness as we increasingly become sowers of peace. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.